So, is there anyone like our God? That's right. He's awesome. I think you're going to be reinforced with that today as we, we look at Joshua chapter 3. And so if you have your Bible with you and you turn to Joshua chapter 3, if, if you don't have a Bible with you, you're going to find them in the racks right in front of you in your seat. And if you don't own a Bible, feel free to take one of those with you when you leave today. It's our gift to you. We really want you to have a, go- a copy of God's Word in your hand. If you're not familiar with the Bible, uh, go all the way to the beginning, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua. Okay, you'll find it very, very beginning of the Old Testament. While you're turning there, I want to remind you of an encounter that Isaiah the prophet had with God. We're told that um, an earthly king died. Isaiah chapter 6 speaks to this. Um, His name was Uzziah. And Isaiah wrote this. He said, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord lifted high, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Now, he had this image or this vision of God in heaven. How this transpired, we don't understand. But when he says the train of his robe filled the temple, he was using very ancient language about kings. When um, a king was sitting on his throne, the the length of his robe indicated the power of his kingdom or the, the massiveness of it. And so Isaiah says, I saw the Lord sitting high on a throne and the train of his robe, it filled the entire temple that he was in. Okay, That's how mighty our God is. Now Isaiah said in that moment he heard something. He heard the seraphim, which is an order of the angels, cherubim, seraphim, ordinary messenger angels. So the seraphim are flying in heaven and they begin calling to one another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And they call, echo back and forth, holy, 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 holy. And it's bouncing off the walls of heaven. And Isaiah said, in that moment there was an earthquake in heaven. Well, it'd be a heaven quake, I guess, okay? So he said that the walls of the temple began to shudder and the threshold and the foundations shook. That's at the voice of angels. Can you imagine when your God speaks? And they were declaring who he is, his holiness, his awesomeness. And Isaiah said, In that moment, I knew I was a dead man. He said, woe to me, I am undone, for my eyes have seen the King of glory, and I'm unworthy because I live among people, us. We're going to get a picture of the awesomeness of our God this morning in Joshua chapter 3, just to set it up for you. Joshua is now the leader of Israel. Moses is dead. He's been leading them for a short period of time. Moses was with them during 40 years of wandering in the wilderness because they had not trusted God. They had not entered into the promised land. God said, it's there for you. They were afraid. They backed off. They didn't take it. So God said, fine, I'm going to purge you of an entire generation. So for 40 years they wandered in the wilderness. God purged an entire generation. So there's, in Joshua chapter 3, this whole new young generation of people who had not experienced the view of the promised land before. They'd wandered in the wilderness. They grew up hearing about it. And now we find in Joshua chapter 3, they're standing on the edge of the Jordan River and the promised land is just on the other side, what we call modern day Israel today. That was to be their new home. 
And Joshua sent spies in advance into the land to see if it was a good time for them to enter. Spies came back, gave a great report. That's Joshua chapter 2. And so Joshua chapter 3, you see Joshua waking up the next morning after the spies gave the report. And let's look at what it has to say. Joshua chapter 3, verse 1. You'll see it on the screen as well. Then Joshua rose early in the morning, and he and all the sons of Israel set out from Shittim and came to the Jordan, and they lodged there before they crossed. At the end of three days, the officers went through the midst of the camp, and they commanded the people, saying, When you see the ark of the covenant of the Lord your God with the Levitical priest carrying it, then you shall set out from your place and go after it. I don't know what you know about Joshua, but he's a type A. He's an alpha male. This guy is a man of action. And you can see it in the fact that he gets up early in the morning. He's always preparing, he's always planning, and as soon as he hears the report, he makes immediate preparations for them to cross the Jordan River. Here's the hard thing about the passage that you're reading. I want you to see on the screen an image of what they faced. This is the Jordan River at flood stage. As you're going to see in a few verses, they're there at flood stage. Now during other times of the year, you can cross the river and wade through it, You won't get wet much beyond your chest or your waist, but at flood stage, it will kill you. Now, mind you, we're talking about children being with them. How does this happen that a river goes from being just an ordinary river that you can wade across, like the Red Cedar, to being a raging torrent? Well, the next image will help you. It sits at the base of Mount Hermon. Mount Hermon, I don't know if you knew there were snow-capped mountains in Israel, but Mount Hermon is a snow-capped mountain chain. It's a chain of mountains And it gets snow like the Rocky Mountains do here in the United States. And in springtime, when it melts off, it flows towards the Jordan River and it turns it into a raging torrent. Some of you understand what that's like because you saw images of Grand Rapids this spring back in April when the rain never stopped and it never stopped and it never stopped and the Grand River overflew its banks. Well, imagine adding to that the fact that this is a rapids. So this point right here, Where we're at in this passage, Joshua has no knowledge of how God's going to get this group of two million people. That's how big Israel is at this point. Two million people have to cross that river. So he has no knowledge how to move this massive group of people over this swollen river, but he believes that God's going to make a way because he knows God is faithful. So we're talking livestock, baggage, children, carts, possessions seven miles from Shittim to the Jordan River. They've moved. Imagine walking out the door this morning. You walk out to Hazlitt Road. You don't get in your car. You walk all the way down Hazlitt Road. And you keep walking and you keep walking and you keep walking until you come to Williamston Road. And you turn and go south. And you walk and you walk and you walk and you walk till you come to Williamston. Seven miles. That's how far they carted all these possessions only to get to the bank of the River Jordan and find that raging torrent. Now, we're told that they're there for three days according to verse 2, and they stop at the banks of the river. Do you imagine during those three days that everybody in the camp took their turn to walk over and look down inside and see that raging torrent, and they're being told, promised land's over there, but we're going to go across this. I'm a father. I'm be thinking about my kids. Farmers, they'd be thinking about their livestock. So the leaders take this three days' time to organize the crossing. Now imagine the excitement and the anticipation as something that you've heard about your entire life. The promised land is waiting for you. It's got your name on the title indeed, but you can't get it unless you cross this. 
And for months they've waited, and now the moment's here. What would you do? Would you hesitate? Would you do what the previous generation did? The previous generation didn't believe God, and they wandered away. They were intimidated. Would you get weak in the knees, or would you take God at His word? Yep, it's an impossible crossing. Now, we're told that at the end of the three days, the people are given some specific instructions. If you look very closely at verse 3, they were told, when you see the Ark of the Covenant. Now, that should set off some bells in your mind because the Ark of the Covenant is not normally seen by people. Mind you, when we're talking about the Ark of the Covenant, I want to get this image in your mind. So look at this image on the screen of the Ark of the Covenant. We're talking Indiana Jones-type Ark of the Covenant, okay? You got the image? The Ark of the Covenant of God, that which went before them when they went to battles, the thing which was never seen by people, rarely ever brought out into view, it was usually in the Holy of Holies, and only the high priest saw it, but we're told right here, you're going to see the Ark of the Covenant. Why? Because the pillar of fire no longer leads them by day. The pillar of smoke is no longer visible. This ark, God's ark, he says, my ark is going to lead you personally. Four foot wide, two foot deep, two foot high. It contains the Ten Commandments. It's got the rod that Aaron carried that buds perpetually. It's got this golden jar inside it full of manna. And God says, this thing is going to go before you. And he says, this is my ark. Now, one of the most important features of this story is that it features the Ark of the Covenant, and it's mentioned 16 times between chapter 3 and chapter 4. Why so important? Why is it mentioned over and over and over again? Because it's no mere symbol. It represents the person and the presence and the power of God, meaning God is present among them, like the Holy Spirit in your life today. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, God said, my spirit is among you. For these people, it's no mere symbol. It means God is present. So they need this visible image as the people set out to cross the Jordan River and to take possession of what they were told belongs to them, meaning they're not going in their own strength. They're going in the power of God. He's the source of victory. It's not their strength they have to rely on. Go with me to verse 4. However, there shall be between you and it a distance of about 2,000 cubits by measure. Do not come near it, that you may know the way by which you shall go, for you have not passed this way before. So with the ark going ahead, they're to keep their distance about 2,000 cubits. I'm just guessing not the average person knows what a cubit is, so I'll I'll tell you. It's about 18 inches. So 18 inches by 2,000, you're talking 3,000 feet, more than a half a mile. They've got to keep their distance from this thing that has the presence of God. They've got to stay back. Why? Well, I've come up with a few reasons, conclusions of my own, why I believe they were given this instruction. For one, if we're talking a group of two million people, if that ark was right here in front of us, everybody in this auditorium could see it. We'd be looking at it. But what about the people behind you and the people behind them and the people behind them? They'd never get a chance to see it. And God says you're going to see it. So if it's a half mile away in a riverbed, Chances are pretty good that that group, as they're crossing the river, can at least glance up there and see it, being reminded that God is there with them. But here's here's the other reason, I believe. 
It's more than just the distance issue because of the population of people. It's reminding them of the holiness of God and how He is to be revered because there is no casual intimacy with God. He wants a profound spirit of respect. So God is not the old man upstairs, as many people refer to Him. He's the God of wonders. The awesome God in which heaven shakes when His name is declared. So there's no casual intimacy with Him. So He's about to lead them over this really unfamiliar ground because we're told in verse 4, you have not passed this way before. Meaning they're going into new territory. And without God's guidance, they're not going to know the direction. So here's what I'm taking away from this. My own personal life, maybe you'll take it this way, without my proper reverence for God and understanding who He is, it's not possible for me to know His plan and purpose for my life. If I don't keep Him in a proper perspective, to know what God intends for me means I revere God and who He is. And He'll reveal His plan and purposes and He'll guide. Go with me to verse 5. Then Joshua said to the people, Consecrate yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among you. And Joshua spoke to the priests, saying, Take up the Ark of the Covenant and cross over ahead of the people. So they took up the Ark of the Covenant and went ahead of the people. Do you know, for me as a guy, it would be easier if he had said, Hey, sharpen your swords, guys, and and pull out your shields. Make sure that your shield leather is really strapped on tight. Because we're thinking action. They're going into the enemy territory. They're going to take the promised land. But he doesn't say that. He doesn't say prepare your defensive weapons. He says prepare your heart. It's because he recognizes spiritual preparation is needed. Why? Because God's about to reveal himself. You want God to reveal himself in your life? You've got to prepare your heart. So he's talking about spiritual preparation. That's why he says in verse 5, For tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among you. So you've got to consecrate yourself. I'm going to show you this word on the screen. It's the only Hebrew word you're going to get this morning, and I know you'll feel cheated, but here it is. It's, it's the word kadash. And kadash is the word consecrate. But look very closely at the definition. It's talking about hallowing something, setting it apart. So when something is consecrated, we're talking about something that's purified. Do you know that God says that when He sees you, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ... If you're a follower of Jesus, He sees you as holy because of what Jesus did on the cross. Your sins have been wiped away. You're set apart for His purposes. The problem is that sin creeps into our life, our daily activities, the things that we involve ourselves in. And so while we might be consecrated, while we might be justified and saved forever, it's a permanent deal, no one can take it from you, We can hinder the activity of God in our life by getting involved in sin. And the same would be true for the Israelites at this time. They they were involved in activities they shouldn't be. And so God says, I want you to consecrate yourself. That means holding nothing back. You don't reserve things for yourself if you're consecrated to God. It means you give everything up to Him. It's, It's surrender. That's what we're talking about. Let me give you a couple examples from Scripture. Exodus 19 is talking about this. Now, this predates the crossing of the Jordan River. Exodus 19.10, the Lord said to Moses, so we find Moses is alive, the Lord also said to Moses, go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow and let them wash their garments and let them be ready for the third day for on the third day the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. 
they understood that what consecration meant, this kadash thing, was a series of really complex actions. They had abstained from certain foods. There were activities they couldn't involve themselves in. They had to wash their clothes. They had to wash their body in order to be consecrated so that God could come among them. And we don't have to do those things today, obviously. God's not telling us to be consecrated in that same way of washing our clothing so that we're acceptable for God's presence because we've been washed by Jesus. But here's one thing that remains certain today that was true back then. The people who would not act on this commandment to consecrate and purify their lives, to be holy, would not see the activity of God. They would not see the presence of God. They would not be used of God. They wouldn't be allowed to cross the river if they hadn't consecrated themselves. Here's one more example for you. It comes from Joshua 7. This is after the crossing of the Jordan. Verse 13 says this, Rise up, consecrate the people, and say, Consecrate yourselves for tomorrow, for thus the Lord, the God of Israel, has said, There are things under the ban in your midst, O Israel. You cannot stand before your enemies until you have removed the things under the ban from your midst. See, consecration requires removing things or surrendering things. Those things that we hold most precious in our life, that we're so attached to, that they take the place of God. And when we don't surrender those things to God, those are the very things he comes back to us to say, give that up to me. Let me work with that. Surrender it. So consecration is, is, is an involvement of removing things from your life, and it's also surrendering things, giving up what you're holding on to. And when there's a lack of consecration, we hinder the power of God in our life. So when I translate that over to 2013, I would say when there's a lack of confession, I can hinder the power of God in my life. I've come before the Father and say, God, I I have messed up. I've sinned again. That's confession. That's consecration. Coming before the one who can cleanse you and just say, Father, I just need forgiveness of the sin that I've committed. Maybe you've offended a friend or you've done something you shouldn't have been involved in. That's consecration. You're surrendering your heart. Now, there's something more going on here than just this call to consecration. There's also the fact that the people were to expect God to show up. They're supposed to expect God to work. They're eager to be gripped by this sense of wonder. So as they're not losing sight of him, they're going to see this ark go out into the middle of the river. They're also supposed to keep their eye on the fact that God's going to show up. Perhaps you find yourself this morning wondering. Perhaps you're, you're wondering why you don't see the power of God in your life. Maybe you're wondering even why you don't even have effective communication with God. Maybe you feel like your prayers are not ever being answered. Here's a logical question to ask yourself. Am I living with things under the ban? Look very closely at verse 13. You cannot stand before your enemies until you have removed the things under the ban. I don't know what that is in your life. I don't know what that thing is that you have to surrender to God. But God says you aren't even going to be able to stand. What we're not talking about here is is justification. You were saved at the moment you received Jesus. We're talking about sanctification. Those things that impede the power of God working in your life. Sin, activity. The things that we do in consecration are not qualifying us for salvation. That was given to you. But these things, they remove the barriers to God's power. 
Uh, Here's a few conclusions I've arrived at in these first six verses. First of all, when God says move, you move. You don't don't stay put. When God says move, you move. You cannot stay where you are and be used of God at the same time. It requires movement on your part. You have to respond. And the people of God were to expect God to work a miracle. And they're not to lose sight of their God, but they're to be in a place where God shows up. And to do that requires surrender. God says, if you're going to see me, if you're going to be part of what I'm about to do, you've got to be completely surrendered to me. Go with me to verse 7 now. Now the Lord said to Joshua, This day I will begin to exalt you in the sight of all Israel, that they may know that just as I have been with Moses, I will be with you. You shall moreover command the priests who are carrying the Ark of the Covenant, saying, When you come to the edge of the waters of the Jordan, you shall stand still in the Jordan. Now remember, up to this point, Joshua didn't know how God was going to do it. He's revealed something to him. Joshua knows they're supposed to step into the water. He's trusting that God will do what he said he will do. That the God who is faithful to begin a good work in you is also faithful to complete it. That's what Joshua's going on here. He's believing that God is a God of promise. So he's going to take this step by telling them, you're going to step out into the water. Go with me to verse 9 now. Then Joshua said to the sons of Israel, Come here and hear the words of the Lord your God. Joshua said, By this you shall know that the living God is among you, and that he will assuredly dispossess from before you the Canaanite, the Hittite, the Hivite, the Perizzite, the Girgashite, the Amorite, and the Jebusite. Behold, the ark of the covenant of the Lord of all the earth is crossing over ahead of you into the Jordan. Look very closely at verse 10. He said, you shall know something. You might want to circle that in your own Bible. You shall know something. What did he say you're going to know? You're going to know the living God is among you. The the purpose in God's activity in doing what he's doing is to be known that God is alive among us. Many of you know me long enough to know that I have a favorite passage of Scripture from the Old Testament. 2 Chronicles 16.9, it says this, The eyes of the Lord roam to and fro across the whole earth to show himself powerful on behalf of those whose hearts are loyal to him. That's what you see your God doing here. He's going to be powerful on behalf of those people who are loyal to him to trust him. How else will a watching world know? People around us who don't know God, how else will they know that God can be faithful and that they can trust him if we don't allow him to be powerful in our lives? if we don't step out and take that first step. So you're going to know that the living God is among you, which is significant that he said that. That Joshua mentioned that means that they knew that there were dying gods, meaning God's small g. In this land at this time, the people of the region that they were about to inhabit believed that the gods of the rain and the gods of the wheat field and the gods of the snow and the gods of the thunder, that they came alive and then they died, and then they came alive, and then they died. They believed that they were dying gods. Joshua says, you serve the living God who is among you. And that God, you're going to know that he's among you, meaning he's going to be with you, which reminds me of Hebrews 13.5 when Jesus said, I will never leave you, I will never forsake you. See, the same God yesterday, today, and tomorrow, right church? Never changes. What he was to Joshua is what he is to us today. 
It never changes. The living God is among you. This became the slogan for the children of Israel as they went through the promised land. The living God, the God of all the earth, is among us. That was their victory cry as they went forward. And that's why Jesus said, just remember, this promise is sustaining you. I am with you wherever you go. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. What was true for them is true for you today. Go with me to verse 12. Now then, take for yourselves 12 men from the tribes of Israel, one man for each tribe, and it shall come about when the soles of the feet of the priest who carry the ark of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth, rest in the waters of the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan will be cut off, and the waters which are flowing down from above will stand still in one heap. Question. Has anything like this ever happened before? Kind of, not really, yes and no. I mean, we know that God showed up at at the Red Sea and parted the Red Sea, and 40 years earlier, the children of Israel had crossed on dry ground, and Pharaoh and his soldiers are wiped out when the waters came back in again. What this tells me is that God, many times, will show up differently in your life than he does in mine, but the same God is faithful to both of us. How he delivers you, how he provides for you is totally different than how he provides for me because our God is the creator. In, in Hebrew, the word creator is the word katidzo, and it means the originator. He's original. He doesn't duplicate things. He does things differently. So don't look for the same way that God shows up in my life to show up in your life the exact same way. Joshua knew that this was familiar. I mean, he's seen God part the water before. He was there when the Red Sea parted. So yes and no, We see God showing up differently, though. Move forward with me into verse 14. So when the people set out from their tents to cross the Jordan with the priest carrying the Ark of the Covenant before the people, verse 15, and when those who carried the Ark came into the Jordan and the feet of the priest carrying the Ark were dipped in the edge of the water, parentheses, for the Jordan overflows all its banks all the days of the harvest. Stop right there. We'll go forward to verse 16 in just a minute. What we have here are people folding their tents, they're packing their bags, they're loading their wagons, and they walk right to the brink of the Jordan. And we were just told it's springtime. In springtime, the Jordan overflows its banks. So what I showed you in the early images of this roaring, raging river, that's what they're looking at. And they're being told they're going to have to step off from dry ground into this raging torrent. Do you believe God in this moment? Do you believe God will do what He promised He will do? That He'll actually show up? The river is at flood stage. This is a severe test of their faith. So in this moment, do you advance in fear or do you advance in faith? How do you manage this moment? The rest of the crowd standing there right with you. And this is why it's critical. Because what you believe about God determines what you do next. Have you heard that before? What you believe about God determines what you do next. And they have this critical moment in front of them. So at the distance of a half mile, they're looking 2,000 cubits upstream. And they see that bright golden box. Do you think they had any problem seeing that in the Mediterranean sunlight? I mean, that baby's covered in gold. 
It's four foot by two foot, and it's being carried on the shoulders of the priest in a riverbed upstream. I think they see it very well because of that Mediterranean sunlight hitting that. That's like a spotlight going off. And they see this thing move into the river. What's, what happens in that moment, according to Scripture, is that as the priest, the leaders, step down into the muddy, swirling, raging water, it dries up. God waits sometimes to the last moment. Why God waited until spring? Why did God wait until the river was at its absolute worst? It's flooded. The banks could kill people. See, in the normal time of the year, you can cross the Jordan River in your own strength. You can wade across it up to your waist or your chest. But at this time of the year, it will take your life. And you have to totally trust God. So God shows up at the moment when man can't possibly provide a way out of this situation. And God's done that so many times in my life, I can't begin to tell you, and I'll bet the same is true for you. He takes you to the brink of the Jordan in springtime. Now we're told in the next verse that you're going to see that far away, a great distance away, up in the city of Adam, something happened to the river. God's hand smacks the river. I'm not sure that's theologically the way that he did it, okay? I'm just seeing something going on here that is absolutely remarkable. And back downstream in the middle of the stream is this ark. Look with me at verse 16. The waters which were flowing down from above stood and rose up in one heap. And a great distance away at Adam, the city that is beside Zarathan, and those which were flowing down toward the sea of the Arabah, the salt sea, were completely cut off So the people crossed opposite of Jericho. See, dramatic things happen the moment that we take the covenant-keeping God at His word. The leaders of the nation stepped into the muddy, raging water. They took the risk to believe that God was faithful to do what He said He would do. And in that moment, God shows up and the Lord of the earth intervenes, telling His creation not to do what He created it to do so that He can show Himself powerful and everybody can see the God of wonders. And we're told, according to verse 16, the water flowing down from above rose up in one heap. I don't know what to do with this because I understand gravity and water wants to flow. But everybody understands that God's Word is also a historical book Besides just a theological book, so many people look at that and say, what, what do we do with that? There's Obviously, historians wrote this. This really happened. How do we explain this? Now, mind you, the city of Adam is 17 miles upstream from Jericho. 17 miles of water at flood stage being piled up in one heap. Now, my impression is from reading this passage that the city of Adam was not destroyed. The floodwaters didn't back up and wipe out that city, but rather they piled up against gravity. That's your God. You think that seeing the Ark of the Covenant would be cool? And I'd be right there in line with you. I'd want to be seeing the Ark of the Covenant. How cool would it have been to see in the the city of Adam to watch that water piling up? This is like the Red Sea all over again. 
And not only that, waters from the other tributary streams are cut off according to this passage. They're not entering the Jordan either. So this wide 17-mile long stretch goes completely dry. And what do they do? They hurry across. Go with me to verse 17. And the priest who carried the ark of the covenant of the Lord stood firm on muddy ground. Is that what your Bible says? Mine doesn't either. I'm just seeing if you're paying attention. The ark being carried by the priest on dry ground. How do you explain that? And the priest who carried the ark of the covenant of the Lord stood firm on dry ground in the middle of the Jordan. That's, I mean, that should really mess with your mind. They're in the middle of a riverbed in the middle of flood season and it's dry and they're standing there while all Israel crossed on dry ground until all the nation had finished crossing the Jordan. How could this occur? Some people insist this is no miracle. So let's, uh, let's give them uh, their due. Um, because there was an earthquake in 1267 A.D., right around this region, and the earthquake was so powerful that the banks of the Jordan collapsed in and blocked the river, and it stopped it from flowing for 10 hours. Some people would say, well, because of the 1927 earthquake in that same region, the banks of the Jordan collapsed in and stopped it from flowing for 21 hours, proving that they could have done this just because of an earthquake. Well, I'll admit to you, God can use natural causes, and God does use natural causes. He uses earthquakes and landslides. We only have to think of Jesus being out on the Sea of Galilee when there was a magnificent storm on the water, and we're told that Jesus, seeing the great storm, spoke to it and silenced the waters. God didn't have to use the storm the way he did, but he did use it. It was a natural occurrence to prove himself powerful. So does the biblical text allow for that kind of an interpretation that maybe this was just an earthquake? Well, let's look at it real closely just to kind of settle your mind on this issue. Maybe you have some other people push back on you on this one. Let me give you seven reasons that I think it was actually God intervening. First of all, it came to pass just as God said it would happen, meaning God knew in advance, and he told Joshua what to expect so that he could instruct the people. The timing, number two, was exact. It was exactly when they put their feet in the water. It took place when the river was at flood stage. The two earthquakes I referred to took place in the summer of the year when the water was just a trickle of a stream. Not like this. The wall of water was held in place for an entire day. How long does it take for two million people to cross a river? Most theologians and historians examining this believe that the mile-long stretch of people was five miles long, waiting their turn in line to get across the river. Number five, the water stood up in a heap, piled up according to God's word. Number six, The soft, wet river bottom, which would have been muddy, is completely dry. And the seventh one is this. If you read into chapter 4, you'll see that the waters returned immediately as soon as they picked their feet up and stood on the shore again. The God of wonders was present. So considering all the factors, it's best to view this as an act of God. Now all that aside, as this ends, 12 men were told to pick up stones 
to walk out into the middle of the riverbed near where the ark was at, 12 men who have been appointed by Joshua to pick up big boulders, lift them up out of the riverbed and carry them over to the bank on the promised land side and set them down. 12 boulders piled up high. It's known as raising the Ebenezer. Some of you have sang, come thou fount of every blessing and you've, you've heard those phrases, here I raise my Ebenezer and you thought you were singing about Scrooge. It, it, you're, the word is Ebenezer. Here I raise my Ebenezer because it's a marker stone of what God has done in your life. So the children of Israel are told to put those boulders there that so generation after generation after generation can look back and see that pile of boulders representing the 12 tribes of Israel and understand that God was present in this place and that He came before us. Now here's what I want you to consider as we leave this morning. Crossing the Jordan means that these people are irrevocably committed. Hear me on that. Crossing the Jordan in the midst of the power of God on display means they are irrevocably committed to future struggles. I bet you didn't see that coming. They're irrevocably committed against armies, against chariots, against fortified cities. Because as you know, crossing the Jordan was really the easy part. God put himself on display, but they're irrevocably committed now to future struggles because they're committing themselves to walk by faith in the living God of wonders. They're trusting him to be powerful on their behalf. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ this morning, crossing the Jordan of your life, it represents passing from one part of your life into the next level of maturity to trust God to the degree that he will show up for you. And it's also a picture for you of entering into spiritual warfare because you know if you're an experienced believer as I am that anytime you trust God and you step into something that he's promised for you, the enemy is going to be on the other side waiting for you. He's going to show up. It's just the truth of Scripture. It's the truth of the reality of the world that we live in. So what this really means is the end of living in our own strength and living in our own ability. It's the first step of really trusting God to show himself powerful in every stage of your life in the future. That's what they're committing to. I want you to note this also. It was not left for Joshua to invent a method to cross the river. He didn't have to create a belay system. There's no military training going on by which people are hanging from pulleys to swing across. God didn't leave it to him to invent a way. He gave him all the tools necessary. Everything was there for him. He just had to trust God. Here's the last thing I want you to take with you. The Ark of the Covenant. One of the details about the Ark of the Covenant that we know from Scripture is that on the lid of the Ark were two golden angels, cherubim, who were carved with their wings spreading over the lid of the Ark. In the middle, between the wings, the Bible says, is the place called the mercy seat, the place of God's mercy. If you're a believer in Jesus and you've been in church for a while, you understand that the mercy seat and Jesus are synonymous. The two are in one. Jesus is called my mercy seat. How remarkable 
that the Ark of the Covenant in which the God of the universe said, I will be among you, I will go before you, I will be in the river while you cross, and I will have your backside after you cross. Sounds just like my Jesus. He's there. The mercy seat goes before you. He prepares a way. He's there in the midst of your struggles, and he's got your back. He's there all the way. What a perfect picture of Jesus. So just as God said to Joshua, just as I was with Moses, I will be with you. He repeated that to David. He repeated that to Solomon. He repeated that to you in Hebrews 13.5. Jesus said, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. It's a great promise to take with you today, is it not? There's a reason why God did all this. And he tells us the reason in verse 24 of chapter 4. This is what I'm going to leave you with. The reason for him doing this, it's on the screen, that all the peoples of the earth may know that the hand of the Lord is mighty. See, it's all about him and what he's doing in your life. And do you notice it didn't just say that all the Christians will know that the hand of the Lord is mighty? It doesn't say that all the Jews will know. It says all the peoples of the earth will see how God is acting in your life and they will know the hand of the Lord is mighty. See, that's why the eyes of the Lord roam to and fro across the whole earth seeking to show himself powerful on behalf of those whose hearts are loyal to him. Because he wants to show himself powerful. Are you going to take that first step? Are you at that place where you can trust him by faith? I don't know what it is in your life. Where you've got to surrender and you've got to take that step in order to obtain what God has promised for you. That's what I'm going to leave you with this morning. I'm just going to pray with you right now. Would you bow your heads with me? Father, we're just leaving room for your Holy Spirit to do the work that only you can do. With hundreds of different people, You need to speak in hundreds of different ways. Oh God, I ask that you would speak to each person individually and personally. Remind us, Father, what it means to be consecrated. To surrender to you the things that we're holding on to that are keeping us from experiencing full relationship with you. Father, those things that are preventing us from experiencing your power in our life. God, beyond that, I ask that as we take on this week, you allow us to trust you enough and the the courage is going to have to come from you that you would help us with the faith issue, that we would trust you enough, that we would be bold enough to take the first step to be willing to get our feet wet and allow you to show yourself powerful in our life. God, we leave here this morning knowing you want only the best for us and that you will never leave us and you will never forsake us. It's in Jesus' name we claim that promise. Amen.